in a crude laboratory in the basement of his home. And welcome to the CEO Rated Podcast. It's your host, John Mayetta. Welcome to a CEO Analysis Part 2. It's going to be like Godfather Part 2, Return of the Jedi. I think Part 2 is going to be epic. So the reason why I founded CEO Raider, as I may have stated in the past, was to provide a, a public forum where institutional investors, employees, and customers can rate slash review CEOs and organizations on one platform. So we've taken the best of Glassdoor, the best of LinkedIn, the best of G2 Crowd, the best of some others, and bundled it into one platform. And the reason why is because, as you've heard me say in the podcast before, I spent a decade of my life covering public companies, software, financial technology, tech-enabled services. And it became clear to me that the one variable that determined whether or not a given company was going to be a quote-unquote quality company and whether or not a particular stock was going to work over time, the single most important factor was the quality of the leadership team, the senior leadership team, the CEO in particular. Particularly with a small-cap company or a mid-cap company where it's just sort of one or two products that determine, you know, largely the success of a particular company. And so I used to try to spend as much time as possible with companies and management teams to learn what made the CEO in particular tick. Was that CEO a sales-type CEO? You know, were they sales-oriented? Was the CEO more of a product-type CEO? Did he or she come up through product engineering, software engineering? And would they prefer to spend time with their product team and with customers? How do the CEO view institutional investors? Do they view that time with investors as strategic? Do they spend significant time with investors? And I'm not saying they had to. I'm not saying the more time a CEO spends with institutional investors, the better. That's not true. I think Amazon spends maybe 10% of the year with investors, and it's not Jeff Bezos. And I'd say the average public company, at least during my time, it didn't really change. They probably spent a third of the year with institutional investors. So I didn't have a tool, a platform like CEO Raider to help me collect my thoughts. It was me scribbling down notes, punching it into spreadsheets, this type of thing. And frankly, it wasn't the norm. I was not the typical sell-side analyst in, in my experience as far as the amount of time I tried to spend to understand what drove these people, these CEOs. So that's why I created the tool initially, the platform. It was really for the institutional investor community. But then it became apparent that there are other use cases, particularly for employees, particularly for senior level employees who would be interacting with CEOs, board members who may be recruiting CEOs, executive recruiters who place CEOs. You know, it seemed like there, were more than, there was more than one use case. So as you're aware, we have 42 predefined attributes on the platform which speak to a CEO's leadership style. And we've segregated those attributes into four quadrants, four categories. And yesterday in part one, we covered the quote-unquote personality-related category, those attributes that speak to a given CEO's personality. Today we're going to start with strategy and tactics. That's a single category on CEO Raider. And I'll go through these attributes one by one. And like yesterday, I'll just sort of riff on them. And just keep in mind that these attributes have a value of one as in good, negative one as in bad, or neutral as in depending on the situation, it could be good or bad. So it's a simple scoring system on our tool as people click and assign these attributes to a particular CEO. We do the calculation in the background and I just gave you the math on it. And you can see that right on the tool. We kind of, the formula is an open book. It's not much of a formula. It's an unweighted, simple, arithmetic-styled formula. So attribute number one within the strategy and tactics category is acquisitive, which has a neutral value 
because it could go either way. But in my experience, CEOs really fell into two categories. They either were acquisitive or they, or they weren't. And the way I think about it is, I mean, there are some CEOs that, that don't do any acquisitions. And in some cases, that may make sense. There are other CEOs that will execute acquisitions, but they're typically tuck-in styled acquisitions. And that means, let's say the core business is selling widgets and you found a competitor in a different geography that also sells widgets. They're essentially the same widget. You do 100 million of revenue, the competitor does 2 million. And by acquiring the competitor, you get to establish a footprint in a new geography. In that instance, I'd give you, and if you typically did that type of acquisition, I would give you credit for being quote unquote acquisitive. Even though it's a little tiny tuck in acquisition, it gives you a footprint in a new geography. There's a little bit of work associated with that. And so that, to me, that qualifies as being acquisitive. There are other CEOs that will do little tuck-ins within the same geography. You know, they'll buy tiny little companies where oftentimes they don't even have to report the the, the size of the acquisition in the in the filing because it was less than 10% of revenue in the quarter, which is sort of ballpark the the rule for having to report the size of an acquisition in an SEC filing. And so maybe you're buying a handful of engineers, maybe you're acquiring a few hundred thousand of revenue on a company that's doing a hundred million of revenue and. To me, if you do one of those every once in a while, once a year, once every six quarters type of thing, you're not, that's not acquisitive, even if you're doing that type of thing with some regularity. To me, the interesting acquisitions are the ones that are a little more sizable, that maybe give you a, a footprint in a newer market. I'll give you one in my old space that I thought was interesting that was maybe announced a year and a half or so ago at this point, uh, IHS which is a company I used to follow. And IHS is how I would describe it as an information services company. Much of what they sold was sold via subscription. Much of what they sold was, was data, publications, what they would call information. And they sold primarily into oil and gas and some other verticals. They had a small footprint in auto. They subsequently went out and bought Carfax. But an interesting one is they bought last uh, year and a half or so ago Market, M-A-R-K-I-T in the UK, a fintech company, sort of similar to MSCI in New York, if you know that one that came out of J.P. Morgan. So gave IHS a footprint in a different vertical with a revenue model, a sales model that's sort of similar to their legacy business and that you're selling information. It's recurring revenue, similar margin structure. I love those type of acquisitions. To me, they're strategic. They give you scale in a new industry vertical on day one. They don't screw up the, the margin profile of the, of the acquiring company. Sometimes they, they, they help it. They're margin accretive, although that's less important. You know, similar is, is good enough for me. Whether you're plus or minus two or three points, you know, you can't have everything. So those are the acquisitions that I tend to deem strategic. You'll often hear companies refer to little tucking acquisitions as strategic. You know, we, we bought half a dozen engineers with their little product, we view it as strategic. I tend to not view those little tiny tokens as strategic. Now look, if, if you're one of the automobile OEMs like GM and you go out and you acquire a team that has a functioning prototype that allows for autonomous driving, so it catapults you into a new space where you just don't have the core competency at all. And so you buy this little startup in the autonomous driving space. Okay, that's, that's strategic, I'll grant you that, but I can't tell you how many times we had CEOs talk about Hey, we do this. We bought another company that does what we do. They, they do a little bit cheaper, a little bit better, has a little bit of a different wrinkle. You know, it's 10 people. They have a million in revenue. We bought it for 1.5 million on our revenue base of 400 million. That's, that's not strategic. I don't know what that is. I, I used to see a lot of that. That's called 
maybe buying a little bit of revenue to, to goose revs for the next quarter if you think if you think things may get a little soft because the market's turning down and you've known this little competitor for some time you've got to know each other at trade shows over the years and their business is slowing the entrepreneur may be getting ready to to wind down over the next couple of years and you sort of accelerate things and buy it maybe to, to tuck in a little bit of revenue in the quarter to me those just such a waste of time those little deals take as much time to close as big deals frankly and now you're tying up resources doing those stupid little deals to add half a penny or a penny just come up short in the quarter honestly just take your medicine focus on the strategic stuff as a ceo particularly when it comes to acquisitions do the stuff that moves the needle you got to expend the resources you may as well leverage that fixed cost against something that's going to drive massive roi these little tuck-in things are a waste of time they're annoying to read about. They're annoying to, to work in. They're annoying to the, the market. Oftentimes, these little tuck-ins are uh, older technology. Focus on new and exciting stuff. It energizes the employee base, energizes the market, energizes customers. I could go on and on about this attribute. And it's not black or white. It's really situational. It's opportunistic. It, it's highly strategic. So I think if you have a strategic-oriented CEO who focuses the leadership team on having a strategic M&A program. Doesn't mean you execute M&A with some regularity or frequency, one a quarter, two a quarter. That's It's not about the number. I remember when Oracle used to execute these things in rapid fire? It's not about the number. It's about executing deals such that post-close, the company now has a new competency, a material footprint in a new geography, something of that nature. Truly strategic, organic growth focused. That's attribute number two. Now, um, I think it's generally a, a good thing. There are some CEOs that spend more time on acquisitions than they do on organic growth. And that's this, you know, again, not, not black and white here. If, if, if you're a CEO of a company and you just, let's say you got dropped into a company, it's legacy technology. You've got an employee base that's maybe been with the company for many years, if not a couple of decades. And to really get that company going from an organic growth standpoint, you'd basically have to fire everybody. You'd have to swap out all of engineering, all of product. So in situations like that, it's smart to emphasize a strategic M&A plan. But if that's, if that's not the case, if it's not a company where it's essentially stale technology uh, and frankly just a stale company, if that's not the case, then it's wise to focus on organic growth. And I think this is where a lot of senior leadership teams and boards fall down. This is what I talked about on the podcast yesterday and previous podcasts where many many leadership teams are content to, you know, you'll hear this oftentimes, hey, we're doing a billion in revenue. We more or less grow in line with GDP. We make our numbers. We have good margins. We throw our free cash. We do an occasional talking acquisition, an occasional bigger acquisition. The street seems to be happy with that. And we go about our business. Go along to get along. I, I hate that strategy. To me, that's when boards, and look, it's political. A lot of these boards don't want to ask tough questions because many of these people aren't wealthy. They sit on three, four, five boards. They collect a million to a couple million bucks a year by being a full-time board member. You know, they never made a, a, a ton of money while they were CEO somewhere else. Maybe they have a couple million in the bank. So they're not independently wealthy. It's not hedge fund money. And therefore, these board seats where they make a couple hundred, 300 grand a year, it's material. So they don't want to rock the boat. But to me, this is where a board could really add value. Again, it's the opportunity cost issue. Great. Wow, we did 3%. We slightly beat numbers this quarter, this year, top line, bottom line. What else could we be doing to really get this company going? 
And it's hard because the answer is typically it's, you know, it's on the product side, particularly for, you know, for talking about technology companies and getting new product right is, is hard. You know, I could speak from experience, particularly with limited capital and everybody's limited to a degree. Nobody has, nobody has an uh, infinite cash flow and infinite balance sheet. Everybody's capital constrained to a degree, particularly if you're a company that small cap tech company or a mid cap tech company, and you've got a reputation for, you know, increasing margins steadily. You'd have to take a little bit of pain if you want to change that story and say, hey, we're going to invest. But if it's the right thing to do, you got to do it. So getting product right is, is hard because there's no guarantee that if you invest the capital that the product's going to gain immediate traction or once it gains traction, that's really going to take off. You just don't know what the trajectory is going to look like. There's a fair amount of risk. But at the end of the day, particularly in a space like technology where it's so fluid, I mean, that's what you're getting paid for. The next two categories sort of go together, short-term focus, long-term focus, speaking about how CEOs view the world. Short-term focus could be a good thing, could be a bad thing, could be a good thing if it's we're talking about a CEO being focused on making the numbers. You know, they they provided guidance to the street for next quarter for the year, and they're focused on at a minimum making those numbers. So yeah, that that's important. But if that's how operationally they run the business, hopefully, to borrow a phrase from Bill Green, the former CEO and chairman at Accenture that I covered for several years. He had a saying, or he said it to me once at an analyst day, that they used to try to keep one foot in today and one foot in tomorrow. And I think that's a good way to think about the business, or a good way to think about a business. It's important to execute today. The here and now is very important. That's often what people are getting paid on. A lot of the compensation is focused on the here and now, the execution in present day. But there's got to be some focus on tomorrow and where customers are going and where you think they may go. Oftentimes, you as CEO and you as senior leaders have a better perspective on where customers are going to want to go before they even do, because you can sort of read the tea leaves. You may have a couple thousand, several thousand, a few thousand customers, enterprise customers, and in the aggregate, you could kind of see where things are going to go in the next several years and where they're in the weeds and they're just sort of focused on themselves and maybe a couple of immediate competitors. Maybe they don't see it as clearly as you who can see the entire portfolio. So the ability to anticipate is, is critical. Right? And a good M&A plan could, could feed into some of those needs that you may anticipate from a product standpoint if you don't have the core competency to develop those products organically. I would like to see companies, and you see this with senior teams, to a degree anyway. I don't know that it's perfect, but I think it's important to gear compensation to intermediate-term performance and long-term performance, much like a portfolio manager is comped on three-year performance, five-year performance at, at many firms. And you see that with, with CEOs that typically comped on revenue and EBITDA over time. We'd like to see more of that. Attribute number five, invest for growth. Look, some of these are amorphous, as I said yesterday. As users visit our platform, they may interpret some of these attributes differently. That's fine. It's not meant to be a, a rigid framework. It's, it's just meant to be a framework to help us all through scoring these CEOs and companies for efficacy. And the attributes obviously just speak to the CEO, not to, not to the company. So invest for growth. Look, I mean, it's sort of self-explanatory. It could mean that a particular CEO invests for growth with regard to the product set, invests for growth or with regard to people, invests for growth. Typically, if somebody, if you think of a CEO as one whom invests for growth, it's sort of all of the above. They have a healthy R&D staff. They ramp up the sales and marketing team ahead of new product launches if it's, you know, a material launch. I'm thinking about enterprise technology in my old space for the most part. You know, organic growth is important to them, and therefore they're, you know, they invest in labs, software development labs, maybe offsite labs like you would find at Google and, uh, you know, with the old Google X. And uh, what's Amazon's 
the A123 lab, you know, where you have sort of a sandbox of, you know, smart people working on new things and seeing what, what may work in today's marketplace, you know, experimentation. And I think, you know, frankly, you're a fool if you're in the technology space as a CEO and you're not experimenting. Technology is so cheap to work with these days. You can lease servers from Amazon, from AWS, which is we sit on top of AWS on Amazon's cloud is where CEO Raider sits. Uh, I think Netflix is still on AWS. I think their library sits on top of Amazon's cloud. I don't think that's changed. That was the case certainly of a, uh, as of a year ago. So there's not a lot in the way of fixed costs. There's a lot that you could do in terms of utility computing. I know this isn't news to, to many of you, but cost is not really an excuse to not experiment. So we're constantly experimenting before we launch CEO Raider. We had just sort of put our insurance product identity hub on the shelf. We sold identity hub into the PNC insurance market and ended up shelving it because frankly, I just couldn't fund the seal cycles. The three-year seal cycle out of pocket was one big reason. And another big reason was where the conversations were going. The, the insurance carriers wanted to consume the product as a outsourced service as opposed to a product. And I didn't want to be in the BPO business. So in between the the launch of CEO Raider and sort of the, the shelving of Identity Hub, we must have run half a dozen experiments that summer just with different consultants on sort of different ideas. And there are little mini experiments that we're always running with, with CEO Raider on the limited budget that we have. And an experiment doesn't even have to be a software development experiment. I mean, it could just be, you know, you're doing due diligence on an idea. You sketch out something on a piece of paper, call up some smart people that you may know, Maybe go see a few people, sit in on a, on a trade show, on a conference, try to get smart about something. I consider that an experiment. It requires an investment of time. It requires some new learning. And that's really the, the, the expense is the, the investment of time. And some of the, the product experiments we've run, I mean, it's literally several thousand dollars, a thousand dollars. I mean, it doesn't take a lot. So invest for growth. There's really no excuse to not constantly be iterating and experimenting particularly within the technology vertical and in the retail, in, in any vertical these days. I mean, we've, we've, we've said that before. Technology is, is, is everywhere. So if you run a machine tool shop, you know, is, is there a way you can leverage Google's machine learning platform, you know, build an application on top of it because they've open sourced a lot of that stuff. Uh, can, can you leverage the platform to maybe help you optimize scheduling of, of parts coming into the shop type of thing? Or can you leverage machine learning to help you uh, model break-fix maintenance requirements on uh, machinery in the shop on, so you could better, better uh, model your, your capital investments going forward? Attribute number six within the strategy and tactics category is just sort of the converse of uh, invest for growth, and it's underinvest. and I used to see that. Frankly, I lived that a little bit, um, not here at CEO Raider, but when you underinvest. Customers can sense it. Employees can sense it. You know, people want to go where the growth is. How many times have you heard that saying? Particularly in technology. Attribute seven, calculated risk taker. It's a good thing if, if you're deemed a calculated risk taker, particularly as a public company CEO. There are a lot of, uh, not to pick on any one personality type, but there are some old school sales oriented CEOs that I've met over time, including you know, public company CEOs, where you could just tell the CEO had nothing to do with sort of guidance in what Wall Street expectations were for financial performance for the quarter for the year. That approach really doesn't fly anymore. I mean, I'm sure there's still a number of those folks out there, but as CEO, you've got to own some of the financial stuff, even if that's not really your personality type, because those are the companies that would miss the quarter. 
then the converse of that is attribute number eight, overly risk averse. And that sort of goes in with under invests, that other attribute that was number six. Dangerous, dangerous place to be if you're a technology company and you're guilty of being overly risk averse. You need some healthy risk aversion, obviously. But attribute number nine, strategy and tactics, has a clear vision for the business. So it's more of a phrase as opposed to an attribute. But, you know, important nonetheless. I mean, there I used to, We've met companies in the past, public and private, tech companies, software companies, where it wasn't clear what they wanted to be when they grew up. And that's one thing in the early stage. You're doing a few million in revenue. Maybe a market's starting to move away from you a little bit, and you've got to sort of re-architect the company to a degree. You're a mature company. You're doing a few hundred million in revenue. It's not quite clear what the heck you do. You've got a portfolio of different businesses. Remember, remember the old progress software? It did a million different things that were sort of related. I think you can have a you can have a mix of businesses that are loosely related at scale and within the world of software or technology. But let's focus on software where I used to make my living. If you, if you kind of do you know a few hundred million, a billion in revenue in one area, and then you've got another billion in another area, I buy into that because those are sort of businesses that have scale, have margin at that size. That means they're competitive in that particular vertical they address. And it could do some interesting things. But if you get a, a bunch of little products that are loosely related, the customers aren't necessarily going to want to, want to bundle all of them or even 80% of them. Maybe they just, you know, a couple of them are obvious to sort of buy together. But the rest are, you know, it's, it's, it's a very loose structure, let's say. And they're all sort of doing, let's call it $25 million in revenue with different margin profiles. You're not really going to be a leader in any particular space at that size. And so, therefore, to sort of spread your energy across multiple verticals like that just doesn't make much sense and i think investors know this i don't think i'm educating many investors maybe some folks that just graduated from college but uh ceos it's more a message for you and for boards focus the effort in one or two critical areas get skill because your valuation would be much higher if you had let's say you had one core product and then an ancillary product and in the aggregate you did a couple hundred million of revenue versus in the latter case let's say you had six products that in the aggregate gave you a couple hundred million of revenue and they had different margin profiles and this, that, and the other. And it was a very disparate looking product portfolio. The street will give you a higher valuation for the first case because there's more continuity. It's easier for them to, to sort of track, you know, strategically, it's a cleaner story to tell. So a lot of it's optical, you know, it's, it's the narrative associated with case one versus case two. But usually, you know, if you're a CEO, if you're a board, simple, is better. A simple story will get a higher valuation. Complexity is bad. And I'm not, I'm not talking about if the technology you sell, if it's complex. It could be complex and therefore you know, very elegant, like the iPhone. But if it's uh, complexity of story that we're talking about, not so much complexity of product, complexity of story is a, is a bad thing. CEOs and, and, and boards. Next attribute is just the converse of what we talked about, unclear business direction. So valuation sensitive, the way I was thinking about that was within the context of M&A, some CEOs will execute M&A, valuation be damned. Uh, IBM is famous for this. Why these CEOs and boards overpay? I think, frankly, the answer is simple. They don't have a rigorous M&A process. They probably don't have a, 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 they have a corporate, corporate development team. That's a team of administrators, not people who are used to, to, to valuing assets. In the boards... As I've said and written about in, in podcasts and in articles past, the, uh, the, the, the board members are from different industries entirely. They're, they're retired executives or executives that are about to retire, and none of them are from, from within an industry. And frankly, you know, a good board member, 
that's doing his or her duty on the board will ask the question, you know, even if they're from a different industry, hey, is, is what we're paying a reasonable amount? Hey, where are the multi where are multiples trading in this space? You don't have to be from industry per se to, to think of that question. That's sort of a horizontal question that cuts across industry verticals. The next two attributes sort of go together, innovative and unimaginative. Yes, in the world of technology, in the world of software, I met a number of CEOs that I would not consider to be innovative. It's like a cardinal sin, but it's, it's, it's true. Look, what I learned in my experience on Wall Street was that I valued innovation, but I probably undervalued it. I valued the quality of a particular company's product or service, but I probably undervalued it. And so if you're an institutional investor on the tech side in particular, the product set really matters. Whether or not the CEO has a curious mind, which is a, sort of the last attribute, strategic thinker, intellectually curious, it, 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 it matters. A culture of innovation is necessary for long-term, multi-year success at a technology company. And I think that, you know, the, the good investors know that. There are a lot that, that, that don't. They think the model they think past financial performance and guidance for next year and the year after, you know, the out-year guidance, the high-level guidance, they think that's what drives success. And it's the, 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 the product set. If you don't get product quite right, if the market starts to move away from you and your existing product, I mean, you can kind of see it. It'll manifest itself in the numbers, but there's not going to be a, a leading indicator or leading indicators that appear in the numbers unless things are really falling off a cliff. It's going to be hard to spot. You've got to learn the technology. You've got to talk to customers. So that is strategy and tactics. I think what we'll do is we'll tackle the smaller of the two remaining categories, which is investor-related, and then we'll leave operations-related for part three. Part trois, we'll do that tomorrow. So within the category investor-related, I have half a dozen attributes. They're all really related, so there's really just two sides of the coin for three different attributes. The first set, first attribute is attentive to investors. The second attribute, inattentive to investors. And this sort of goes back to what I said about Amazon earlier. It, it, it's important to make sure that Wall Street, that the sell side, the buy side, particularly the buy side, sometimes the message, if it comes through the sell side, if you lean on the sell side too much to tell you your, your story, it's like a game of telephone. You've got to educate everybody. So it's important that institutional investors know your story, particularly your large holders. Don't assume that just because uh, Fidelity is your largest holder or Capital Group in Los Angeles is your largest holder. Don't assume that the portfolio manager knows your story back and forth. You know, a, a quality portfolio manager and analyst team is, is going to know the story. I think the best investors really know the story. And I don't mean they just get together with... with uh, Management regularly outside a quiet period, but they know the story. They've done their work. They're out in industry. They talk to customers. They talk to other people in the supply chain as best they can. But don't assume that's the case with everybody. So it's important to educate the street. That doesn't matter. That doesn't mean that the CEO has to spend a ton of time. You can have a really high quality investor relations staff that's proactive. You can. You don't necessarily have to accompany the sell side on non-deal road shows in marketing you have to do some of that doesn't need need to be the ceo what i'd recommend public companies do this so for ceos boards ir groups hold you know i don't want to call it an analyst day because then there's the, the connotation that it's it, it's heavily weighted toward the financials 
but have like a, I don't know what you want to call it, company ABC day. Everybody's welcome. So it's not a user conference. It's not an investor conference. You can gear it toward investors. It's going to be more of a product-focused day so that everybody sort of understands the portfolio because that's what really matters, the, the product portfolio. And I think if you just call it a product day, many investors won't go. So you've got to think of a, a name that is uh, sort of non-committal but enticing. Maybe you call it story day and tell everybody they'll be fed for lunch. So the point being, you've got to invest in the investment community. Because as I said earlier, if, if, if investors understand the story, and again, a simple story goes quite a ways to, to that end. But if they understand it, they tend to award a higher valuation. All else held equal if your story is easier to understand than other guys in the space, if it's cleaner. The next set is, and we've talked about this in the past, consistently meets or beats estimates, consistently are inconsistent versus you know results versus estimates so it, it it pays to consistently meet or beat estimates and it's hard for some companies to understand particularly newly public companies they think wow you know what we report is a function of what we did in previous quarters decisions passed it's not really a reflection of the current business yada yada so talk about that in the earnings call here are the numbers we're, we're happy with the numbers da 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 Here's what we're doing. Here's what's going on in the quarter. Here's kind of what we can talk about today. Here's the tone of business today. Here's what we're excited about. You'll steer the conversation in that direction. I think some investors incorrectly think that the, you know, the reported results are a reflection of what's going on at the moment. So it's up to you, the, the company, to educate investors about what really matters. That's your job as CEO. Don't let some hired IR team come in and say, this is how you know, do it like this. You talk about the Because what ends up happening... I'd say what 90% of the earnings calls that I used to be on, the discussion is all about the reported numbers. Again, it matters. You've got to help the street understand, hey, we reported these numbers, but here's the broader context. Help investors understand what's going on with your business today and where you think it's going, not in five years because that's less relevant for an earnings call, but where you think it's going for the next few months. You control the context of the story of the earnings call. You talk about what's important. Don't let some... IR team that you hire or, you know, wait till you're public to start to learn this stuff. Start working on this stuff a year before you, you, you execute your IPO. And then the reason why I say it's important for you to make your numbers, try missing your first uh, quarter out of the box on any of the metrics that matter, revenues, earnings per share. If you're a Facebook-like social media company where, or any company where you have you know, daily active users, monthly active, weekly active, you know, if that's, you report that type of metric. You've got to make those numbers. The first quarter out of the gate is critical. The second quarter out of the gate is almost critical. You really don't want to miss anything the first year. That's a great way to see your stock get, get cut materially. If you miss the first one out of the gate and you miss it you know, with, with some significance, I mean, you can see a stock trade off 20% or more, depending on how it was valued, 50%. I mean, you can get crushed in the market. And then the last two were just guides aggressively and guides conservatively. So it just speaks to meeting or beating numbers. So I just spoke about the execution of it, whether you actually met or missed numbers or beat numbers. But you can help yourself out if when you give guidance, you know, the first time you give guidance on the next quarter or for the year, your initial guidance, it helps if you sandbag a little bit. If you're somewhat conservative, give yourself a chance to meet or beat the numbers. You don't have to put your operating plan out there publicly. You know, haircut your operating plan haircut where you think you're going to come in so that when you actually report them you report your numbers you're you know slightly ahead 
it's a silly game, I know. But again, if you you know try missing your numbers and see see what happens with the stock. That is all for today. We will wrap up this analysis tomorrow. Part three will focus on operations. Be well.